0: So we come back to this uh, very central passage and uh, important text in the life of the church. We spent last week really talking about how it has become, in so many ways, a tangled mess. For so many people around the world almost a billion people, as a matter of fact, when they come to what is known as a communion, table, the communion table or the Eucharist or whatever it might be, for them, it is an offering. It's a sacrifice that's made over and over and over again, it is something that is, that is, we might say, effectual for the forgiveness of their sins. And so there is embedded in the ceremony for them a hope that their what the Roman Catholic Church would call their venial sins, their relatively small little sins that just take place every day in their life are going to be really forgiven by the participation in that sacrifice. For others, there's embedded all kinds of mystery and all kinds of special relevance and all kinds of effectual grace and all kinds of things. And so people come to it with all these mistaken notions. And then, of course, there are other people who come to it with no notion at all. In fact, they come to it with complete indifference, it would seem. They come to it with all kinds of of hidden sin and hidden hypocrisy There are some people who come to it with no thought whatsoever as to the meaning, but it's simply another way for them to put a mask on a hidden life of sin to fool people who are around them, to make them think that you are a Christian. And so we just talked about how this whole thing, which which the Lord gave to us, so central to the life of the church, has just become a tangled mess for so many people. And so what we started to do last week was try to untangle all of that mess, try to get back to the rudimentary elements of what the Lord really desires as we come to the Lord's table each time. Come back to those basic elements that ought to be there. And they're given to us here in this passage. Paul is giving us, as a matter of fact, four rudimentary elements that need to be remembered when we come to the Lord's table each time. They're at the core of the ceremony that the Lord commanded us when he told us to do this in remembrance of him. These are the things that really ought to be in our minds each time we come. We noted last week then the first of those was simply the deceiver. Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I delivered also to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread. In other words, he presents this as John presents this In the context of the betrayer, the deceiver. He presents the meal in the context of a man who was an unbeliever in spite of every conceivable benefit. Every conceivable advantage. He walked with Christ. He saw Christ's miracles. He heard God's word from the lips of God himself. And yet after all that he still didn't believe. And he came to what was to be the communion table. To be a participant. With self-deception and with deception to others. We're not to forget that. Shockingly that he was right there. Although actually before the communion table was ever taken. We noted last week Christ would send him away. It was Christ himself who had to purge out the deceiver. Secondly and obviously we remember the doctrine Paul tells us after that in verse 23, that in verse 24, the Lord Jesus, uh, when he took the bread, he had given and given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And despite all the attempts through all the centuries to to import into that phrase some sort of mystical presence Some sort of uh, idea that Christ simply wanted us to understand. There was some magical change that takes place with the enunciation of those words or whatever it might be. Despite all of that, all appearances from the text are that he was presenting an image, a symbol. Really no different than the symbol they, they had already participated in, the Passover meal, which was simply a meal commemorating an event that took place in the past. There were elements in the meal that were intended to drive them back uh, theologically to certain truths in the history of Israel. No Reason to think that Christ would have anything else in mind, no reason to think that the disciples would have any other conclusion but that the bread that Christ used and the cup that he used were themselves merely symbols of what was taking place, images of what was about to come. And this is the image he was giving them to remind them and to remind us and to continually set before us the truth of his broken body on the cross, the what we sometimes call the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. That is the fact that when Christ says, this is my body, which is for you, what he's saying is that he gave his body as a substitute for you. As a, as a, a, a sacrifice to stand in the place, to take all of the wrath of God, to take all the Uh, judgment of God to take all the punishment for sin, his body was broken. And it was given as a complete sacrifice sufficient to cover all your sins, past, present, and future. And if you're here today and you believe in Christ, that sacrifice is applied on your behalf. All of your sins, past, present, and future. Inward sins, outward sins, sins that you don't even know are going to happen yet. Every one of them covered by the sacrifice of Christ. If you're here and you're not in Christ, you can participate in that supper, you can eat that meal, you can sing songs, you can do all you want, but you still bear the punishment for your sins when you die. You need, as everyone else needs if you're an unbeliever, someone to clear away All your sins. You need as much as anyone else. Someone to purchase forgiveness on your behalf. Because there's nothing you can do that could ever purchase it. That is a huge need in your life. But it's not your biggest need. Your biggest need. Is to be reconnected to God. Your biggest need is to be reconciled to him. And if you don't realize that, then actually having your sins forgiven is immaterial to the point. You can have your sins forgiven, but if you're not reconciled to God, if you're not somehow brought back into fellowship with Him, then simply having your sins forgiven will do you no good. Because the Scripture teaches that the only ones that God receives into His eternal home are those who belong to Him. See, a lot of people... They don't think about that. They think simply about maybe having their guilt assuaged, maybe having their their sins wiped away, maybe having some uh, punishment eradicated, whatever it might be. They have, in other words, a desire to escape punishment, but not necessarily a a desire to be reconciled to God. They're two sides of the same coin. To have your sins forgiven is not enough. To have something simply that you could do to make up for all the bad things you do, to have some good things you do, or whatever it might be, to sort of balance out the scales, doesn't do enough for you. Because your biggest problem is not the bad things you do. The biggest problem you have is not your sin. The biggest problem you have is that you are separated and you are estranged from God. That God says... He is your enemy. That's what the Scripture says. It says that you, because of your separation from God, because of your rebellion in your heart, you're hostile towards God. And Romans 5 says that apart from Christ, you're His enemy. So what you need is not just a sacrifice that can wipe away your sins. And And not just a work or whatever it might be. What you need isn't just that. You need that or you could never be reconciled to God. But if you have only the removal of your sins. But you don't have restored relationship. You're still damned. That's why the beauty of this table doesn't stop just with bread. Jesus, we're told here. In the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant. You say, Well, what's a covenant? We don't use that language very often in modern times. What is this all about, the new covenant? Well, It really stands against a massive backdrop of data, you might say, in the Old Testament. In fact, some people refer to the Old Testament itself in its entirety as the Old Covenant. So in some ways, to really understand the Old Covenant is to understand the entirety of the Old Testament. And we don't obviously have time to do that this morning to kind of frame up in our minds what the new covenant is by framing in our minds what the old covenant is. But we could at least pinpoint the genesis of the old covenant. See, the Bible in the, in the Old Testament speaks about a number of covenants. There's a covenant with Noah, for example, when God promises not to destroy the world by flood anymore. That's a promise. That's a covenant. That's a contract. That's an agreement. And it's ratified, once the ark comes to rest from the worldwide flood, it's ratified by the sacrifice of some animals. There's a ceremony, in other words, where an animal is sacrificed, uh, he's cut open and, and offered up on an altar, and uh, there's th- this is a sort of a demonstration of of a commitment beto- uh, between the two parties, or in this situation... Uh, the single-sided, the unilateral commitment of God not to destroy the world by flood anymore. Of course, he gives us a sign, he gives us a symbol of that commitment in a rainbow, that every time we see it, we're supposed to be reminded of that covenant. Well, as you move on through the Bible, there are other covenants, and one of them is sometimes referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant under Moses, or more generally, we refer to it as the Old Covenant. It too was ratified, if you will. It too had a ceremony that took place, this old covenant. It happened when Israel came out of Egypt, came through the Red Sea, came into the the desert and the wilderness, and at that point, there was another ceremony. There was the sacrifice of animals. There was the spilling of blood, and we read in Exodus 24... Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people so they understand what's in it. They understand what's in the promise, what's in the agreement. We enter into covenants sometimes all the time, really, all these agreements that we make all the time. We don't bother to read them. We don't bother to look at the fine print. You go and sign a contract for a house. You don't read through the 112 thousand pages that they said in front of you right you go through and you sign but he wanted them to understand exactly what they're getting into and so we're told that he reads the entire covenant before them he read it in the hearing of the people and after hearing it they said all that the lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient so moses took the blood And sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So here you have a covenant ceremony. And with the covenant ceremony, just like with Noah, there is a sacrifice and there is a sprinkling of blood on the people. He sprinkled blood, obviously not on every one of them, but over the congregation of the people. And this was the symbol. This was the sign. Problem, of course, is that what they committed to, they couldn't do. They had all the promises in the world. Maybe all the good intentions, all the good feeling in the world. They had no conceivable way of fulfilling it. It's like you going to the 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 closing attorney and all giddy and happy because they've got on that side of the table an offer for a house for five billion dollars and you love this house i mean you've walked through this house you've looked at this got everything you ever dreamed of everything you ever wanted in a house and you're just you're just imagining all these wonderful things and you just say man we're gonna live in it we're gonna get in we're gonna live in this house we're gonna fill this house we're gonna have such a great time in this house give me those papers And you sign your name and you walk out and you go have a nice meal and you're just so happy until what? Until the first bill comes. And you realize, whoa, I can't pay for this. I can't make this payment. Well, this is sort of what was going on with these. This is the way people approach God. They hear a little bit and they think, you know, there's blessing with obedience and there's blessing with knowing God. Yeah, I'm all in, I'm all in. And then the first payment comes. The first test, the first temptation. And they suddenly have to own up to their own poverty. I don't have it. I don't have to give what's demanded of me. That's for the old covenant. And guess what? Although they may have realized after the first payment that they couldn't give, the payments kept coming. The bills kept coming. Month after month after month, year after year after year, a pile after a pile, and there was no way out. You understand? They couldn't just walk away like we do sometimes in our society. They couldn't go to some bankruptcy court. They couldn't ask some judge to just get rid of it all. They were being buried by this covenant. But the problem is they had entered into it. They had agreed to it. They were in it. They were bound to it. And now there was so much to pay. The old covenant really was just an outward manifestation of the same thing God requires for every human being born into this world. God had made it explicit to to Israel. The, The advantage that Israel had is they had it all written down so that they could see it in plain language. But but the, the problem for the rest of you is that God is still mailing those bills into your life. God is still adding to you the demands, the demands, the demands that you be obedient, that you live up to a standard of holiness, and you still have the same poverty. You still can't make the grade. And you still are being buried under all those demands. And the scripture says, if you die apart from being able to pay everything that you have to pay in terms of righteousness and goodness and holiness, God is still going to hold you accountable. You have a problem. Whether you really ever got sprinkled with blood or not, you are in some way under the law. You're under the demand of God. Romans 1 tells us that Israel had it explicitly... uh, uh, Revealed to them, but for the rest of us, it's written on our hearts, you see. It's our conscience. God tells us what we're supposed to do. Well, the good news, at least for Israel, is that God recognized their problem, and He promised them a new covenant. A refinance, a restructuring, if you will. And, and he's going to work this out. Over in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, he makes reference to this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And, or for, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He says, look, this is the new contract I'm going to make. First of all, I'm going to completely wipe out all your debt. I'm going to wipe out everything you owe. And then not only that, I'm going to actually put into your heart, I'm going to put into your account, if you will, all the resources you ever needed anyway. I'm going to put in there the, the, the obedience. I'm going to put in there the desire for me. I'm going to put in there the heart for God. I'm going to put in there all the things that you couldn't be. When you face those temptations over and over again, I'm going to give you righteousness, he says. This is the new covenant. This is a great deal. This is a, a, a super, a super announcement. This is what was revealed in the Old Testament, but you'll notice it was revealed here for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It was something that was specific for Israel, at least as it was made known at this point. But when you come into the New Testament, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. That there's another part to this new covenant. After telling us that we're dead in trespasses and sins in verse 1, he tells us down in verse 12 Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ for he himself is our peace who made the two uh, both of us i should say as one this is a good news That we who were once strangers to this new covenant, this covenant of promise, we have been brought into it as Gentiles, we might say. And so when when this ceremony of Christ was enacted, when he lifted up the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is what we're remembering We're remembering that we too were under this weight, this load, this unbearable burden, and God has come and provided the new way with a new sacrifice. New blood. Not the blood from some bull or goat sprinkled from some altar, but the blood of Christ Himself, the blood of God. Poured out and sprinkled over you. So if you're in Christ, if you believe, you're a recipient of all these benefits. You're a recipient of the forgiveness. You're a recipient of the wiping away of all the debts. You're a recipient not just of that, but of reconciliation. You who once were far off, you've been brought near. You who once were a stranger and an alien, you've been brought in. This is the new covenant. This is the glory of what we remember, what we proclaim each time we come to the table. Which brings us to the third element of this, this rudimentary element, I should say, of the, of the Lord's Supper, which is the directive. Jesus simply says in responds to both of these elements, do this in remembrance of me. And this is the commandment. This is the directive. Just as Israel had had observed the Passover feast and commemorated God's work on their behalf over and over again, he's ordained a meal for us to do the same. Israel celebrated this once a year. We celebrated every month here in our church, or I should say every four weeks, The early church apparently celebrated it every week. Some churches still do that today. Christ never gave a specific instruction on how often it's to be celebrated, but it's to be celebrated often. And when we do it, it's to be celebrated in a biblical manner, as a time of remembrance, remembering Him, pointing back to Him, remembering His sacrifice, remembering His new covenant this is why, by the way, we we embrace here in this church what is often called a memorial view of the Lord's table, a memorial view of the communion table, because we recognize this is the primary purpose of it. It is a remembering event. And in that it is a worshiping event. It is it it is no. Detriment to the Passover to say that it was a commemorative ceremony, to say that God ordained it for Israel so that they ate it on an annual basis, and when they ate it, they remembered the details of the Passover ceremony. It's no detriment to the ceremony God gave them to say that nothing magical is in it, there is no mystical presence in the Passover meal. And the same is true, of course, with the Lord's table. We partake of it as worshipers. We partake of it as, as those who are remembering. We partake of it as those who are sincerely thankful to have a Savior who would rescue us from our plight of sin. And in a way, each time you come to the communion table, you, what you're doing is you're preaching. You're preaching to yourself. You're telling yourself, that that despite the guilt that you may feel, despite the, the pain of your conscience, despite all of that, there's a sacrifice that's sufficient for you. And there's a blood that's been poured out to purchase a new covenant with all of its benefits for you. Not just that. You're not just preaching to yourself, though. Paul says here in verse 27 that as often... Excuse me, in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That proclamation, as we said, is is obviously in your own heart, but it is equally to all who observe. We make public proclamation. We offer the good news of Christ's sacrifice in the new covenant at the communion table. Each time we come, it's it's really beautiful in the wisdom of our Lord to give us such a beautifully simple ceremony to keep the beautiful simplicity of the gospel always before our eyes. Lest we somehow drift off as a church into simply doing a bunch of moral good deeds, or lest we drift off somehow into thinking that this is all about our own sacrifices or our own works. Christ gave right at the core of our worship this continual and regular remembrance ceremony. All of this sort of culminates in Paul's fourth and final element to remember in the Lord's table. And that is the danger. The danger. I mentioned it a few moments ago. It's worth repeating but if you put the sequence of the Lord's final evening before the crucifixion, if you put all that sequence together, what you find is as he gathered around the table with his 12 disciples, before he actually took the communion, he sent Judas away. He did that because he simply wanted to punctuate the fact that this table, this ceremony, is intended to be remembered with purity. With purity in our hearts and with purity in our fellowship, in our congregation. And this is what Paul gets to in verse 27, because all of these solemn truths and all these solemn doctrines, uh, where all of these things were supposed to communicate All of this message to ourselves and to the world, the last thing we want to do is participate in an unworthy manner. The last thing we want to do in all of this communication is to communicate the wrong message. The last thing we want to do is participate like a hypocrite, like Judas. It's a message that the world has received too often from the church, too often The message is that the church is full of hypocrites. The message is you can claim to worship God, but still hold on to your sin. The message to the world is that God's not concerned about purity in your life, purity in your fellowship, purity in your devotion. That you can sort of flippantly approach God however you want and people even today are sort of becoming home church folks and they just sort of worship God in the privacy of their home and there's people who take communion in the privacy of their home and there's really very little concern for this this purity of fellowship well Paul wants you to be aware he wants to make sure you're aware that if you approach the communion table in that way there are consequences This is exactly what he says in verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. You're guilty. You've cast your lot against Christ. And against his work. You become guilty of mocking and treating with indifference the very person of Christ. You treat our Lord no better than his enemies did. You dishonor his body and blood, which are represented in the table. We all grieve when we watch on the news. Pictures of some foreign land where people are taking our flag and throwing it on the ground and dancing on it and singing with every pounding of their foot is like a pierce attack against our own heart. And yet this is exactly what you do if you come to the communion table in an unworthy manner. You are dancing, if you will, you're, you're, you're rejoicing in your sin while you're Uh, 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 professing, I should say, to honor Christ. And each time you do that, it's like a dagger, if you will, at the honor of Christ. Obviously, to do it as an unbeliever is to do it in a most unworthy fashion. To think that somehow you, even though you withhold belief from Christ, you're going to come and participate at His table. But even beyond that to come with unconfessed sin. Broken fellowship between you and another believer. Some area of obedience that you're withholding and not wanting to offer up to Christ. Some, some sin that you just will not confess. Some, some guilt that you're bearing that you're not taking to Christ. For all these reasons Paul says that each time you come. You are to examine yourself. Test your attitudes. Test your heart. Test uh, See if there's hypocrisy. Cherishing of sin. Pursuit of selfishness. Do all this, Paul says. It's vital. Because if you don't. God will do it. He will intervene. And he will bring purity. This is what he's saying basically in verse 29. If you fail to purify yourself, God will do it for you. He says if you if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body. He eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. Some of your Bibles may read, uh, some of you are asleep, but he's really talking about death. Some of, you, some of you are weak and ill, and we assume by that he's talking about physical weakness and physical illness because we're, he's talking about physical death here. And Paul's warning that if we approach a communion table with unconfessed, unrepentant sin, God will act in judgment and bring physical consequences into your life. You see, there's all kinds of levels of discipline. Scripture teaches us that that you shouldn't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man reaps, he'll also what a man sows, he'll also reap. And there's all kinds of ways in which we reap corruption if we sow corruption. Some of it is eternal that is to say there's a loss of eternal rewards some of it is temporal and Paul I believe here is indicating sort of a progressive nature to the disciplining hand of the Lord it moves from less severe to more severe the longer we hold on to our sin some of these temporal consequences and temporal fruits in our lives are maybe in the early stages of God's disciplining hand are relatively minor Loss of joy, the burden of your conscience, uh, the, the beginning stages of the disciplining hand of the Lord are just the weight on your mind, the distraction, if you will, because you know that you're not doing what God has commanded you to do. And when you don't respond to that, the Lord brings even heavier consequences. He may bring shame. He may bring exposure to your sin. He may bring others into your lives who have to rebuke you and call you back to repentance. It may bring an end to a relationship, the loss of relationship, the breakdown of friendships and fellowship around you, sometimes even the loss of your family. The loss of a proper relationship with your spouse and and with your children. God may even bring other circumstances and consequences that are directly related to your sinful behavior. The loss of your job. Loss of other outward joys and benefits. All your outward security. And Paul is teaching that God may even bring physical consequences in your body. Weakness, sickness, and unhealth. David talked about this. You remember in the Old Testament, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the sin iniquity of my sin he said in the psalm just prior to that psalm 31 my eye is wasted from grief my soul and my body also for my life is spent with sorrow my years with sighing my strength fails because of my iniquity my bones waste away and he's describing what's going on in his life Physically, he's saying, look, I feel like I'm just out there in the middle of the desert in the hot sun, and I'm just being drained of the vitality in my life. There's no energy. I just drudge through the day from one thing to the next, and I have maybe only spurts of joy with some temporal blessing, but my life overall is sapped of vitality. And there's just this, this is draining off because of the burden of grief and conviction in your heart because you're doing war with sin. Someone has pointed out some deficiency in your life. Someone has challenged you to obedience. Or maybe you've just, you've just realized some deficiency in your life and you are resisting doing what God wants you to do. You know you're not pursuing God like you used to. You know you're not serving God like you used to. You know you're not where you're supposed to be. And you're trying to ignore it. You're trying to suppress it. You're trying to pretend it's not there. And yet it's having its effect on you. Consequences are arising from the grief and the stress that you're bringing into your heart and mind. Eating disorders, sleep disorders, physical consequences, all that stuff. And then it has its own domino effect in your blood pressure, in your digestive tract, in your nervous system, and your chemical imbalances, and your mental capacity. And you're going around and you're seeking all these solutions and all these therapies and all these things and this dietary changes and all this stuff. But really, at the heart of it is some unrepentant sin. Some things that you will not deal with in your heart. And you're beginning to feel the weakness and the illness and the pressure of God's disciplining hand. The problem is sin, it's disobedience, it's guilt. And you're not dealing with your guilt the right way. You don't deal with guilt by running out and shopping or drinking or finding a new relationship or a new vacation, a new exciting adventure. You don't deal with guilt by sleeping it off. You don't deal with guilt by turning on some entertainment. You don't deal with guilt any of those ways. It doesn't go away. It may be masked temporarily. But it comes back with a vengeance. You deal with guilt the way Scripture says you deal with guilt. Which is by humbling yourself. Confessing what you should have confessed a long time ago. And repenting. Getting your life right with God. Doing what you know you're supposed to do. If you don't, Paul says, there's a point. There's a point where God's disciplining hand gets harder and harder and harder. Even to the point where He takes the life Of some people. You may not be right there yet. But it should be a warning to you. God's not going to stop. Don't think that you're going to outlast him. Don't think that somehow. You're going to get through this. Without repenting. There's a point in the disciplining hand of God. Where he's willing to take even the life of an unrepentant believer. You know, John says this in his first epistle, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask and God would give him his life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There's a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. What John's talking about is is not spiritual death. We know that all sin leads to spiritual death, but he says some sins, some sins don't lead to death. He's talking about physical death. There are some sins that aren't so severe, that aren't so deep, that aren't so, don't go on so long or whatever it might be. And from a, st- a spiritual standpoint, he says, we ought to be praying for people who are wrapped up in sin so that they would find repentance. John's telling us, though, that we shouldn't be praying for people To escape sins that lead to death. You know what he's saying there? Don't pray. For people to simply escape the consequences. Without repenting. John's telling us that we ought not to be praying for. For brothers and sisters who are walking down a pathway of destruction. Taking their early steps. Of destroying their life and the lives of those around them. Destroying their marriages. Destroying their their homes, destroying everything, we ought not to to presume, to ask God to spare them from the consequences before they repent. We ought to be involved with speaking to them. We ought to be involved with calling them back to faithfulness. We ought to be involved certainly in praying for them, asking God to grant them life and blessing and health But only as it comes in tandem with obedience. It's interesting because John actually writes that to a church. And we're told in 1 John 2.19 that some people had left the fellowship. Some people, he says, have gone out from you. Because they weren't of you. These people had broken fellowship and the church was hurting over the fact that they weren't attending fellowship. They weren't with them anymore. And they were praying. And, and probably at this point, some of them were beginning to see the detrimental consequences of, of being separated from the life of the church. And so they're beginning to see all of this stuff happening and the people are praying for them and things aren't turning around in their life. And, and John says, look, don't pray for things simply to turn around in their life pray for them to be right with God. And if they're right with God, they will come back into fellowship with the church. What he's ultimately assuring them there in John 5 is that God hears their prayers. He will answer their prayers one way or the other. His will will be done. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's saying, you need to beware. Of that very fact. God will. He will. Administer his discipline. When necessary. Now just to be clear. That does not mean. That every person who's sick. And every person who has a difficult circumstances. Is under the disciplining hand of God. It doesn't mean that if you have some ailment. Uh, some weakness some deficiency that's necessarily god disciplining you doesn't mean that if you've got some outward trials that's god's disciplining hand of you this remember was the mistake of job's friends they saw his body covered in boils and sores and his circumstances were against him and they jumped to the conclusion it must be because of your sin that wasn't the case it was the mistake of the disciples of jesus in john 9 to assume that because a child was born blind That it must be because of his personal sin or the sin of his parents. Jesus says, No. It was to provide an opportunity for God to be glorified through that man. And so your trial may not be a direct result of some sin in your life, it may simply be an opportunity for you to glorify God through your trial, through your weakness, through your illness. To fight through those things and to continue to come back and give praise to God and thanks to God to continually take your mind off yourself and continually put your mind on other people and serve them. Your trial may not be an indication of your sin. It might be an opportunity for you to demonstrate glory to God. But regardless, every trial that comes into our life, physical, outward, whatever it might be, Still, ought to be an opportunity for us to search our hearts one way or the other. God, is this here directly because of something I'm doing? Or is this here as an opportunity and a challenge to do something? Is this here as an opportunity to glorify you? Paul says in verse 31 if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. If you do the right kind of examination, you will avoid God's disciplining hand so that even in your weakness, even in your sickness, even in your trials, whatever they might be, you can still have joy. You can still have peace. You can still have the, the uh, serenity, you might say, of an unburdened conscience. But when we're judged by the Lord, he says, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned Along with the world. You see whatever God's brought into your life. You need to give him thanks. You need to thank him. For what he's doing in your heart. And in your life. And in your family. Through your trial. You need to thank him. And you need to take it as an opportunity. To draw closer to God. And serve God. Now I always remember someone telling me in seminary. That the reformation would have never happened. Had it not been for Martin Luther's depression. Because he was a man that battled so much with depression. But rather than letting the depression drive him away from God and away from people, he he took it as an opportunity to drive him further to God, to seek God's face more every day, and to serve others. This is exactly what God would have us do. For all these reasons, Paul says a man's to examine himself before he eats and drinks, or to test the attitudes of our heart the conduct of our outward behavior and our reverence for the Savior. Paul reminds them here in verse 33, My brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you not, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. In other words, remember, this is about the meal that they enjoyed before their communion table. And people were coming together in the fellowship and their whole focus was on themselves. They would come together, they would eat their food, they would stick with their little click, and then they would go home. And he says, that's not what the fellowship is all about. When you come together, your focus, when you arrive on a Sunday morning, ought not be yourself and your small sphere of friends, your focus your outlook your scanning of your eyes across the people who are before you ought to be on the lookout for the weak for the needy for those who are in need of encouragement for those who are in need of being drawn in for those who are in need of being built up and edified for those who are in need of some provision some act of benevolence some act of service that's what you come for fellowship to do he says Don't assume that your selfishness can be masked under some ceremony and that God won't care. All the rest, Paul says, like any good pastor, all the other matters I'll arrange when I come. There are apparently some other irregularities, but as any good shepherd, Paul realizes that some things, while they need immediate care, need to be taken care of right now, but there are others that can wait for a better time. Paul says the others will wait. This is the Lord's table. This is what we do when we come. And we're to come regularly. It's a shame if you come to the Lord's table and you come with all kinds of hypocrisy and all kinds of hidden sin, all kinds of undealt with issues that you brought Been trying to hide from other people and even hide from yourself. It's a shame if you haven't been to the Lord's table in a long time. Some of you couldn't name the last time you participated in the Lord's table. Some of you, it's been longer than you want to admit. And you're missing all the benefits of the fellowship and all the benefits of what God intended in the preaching of that message back to your own heart time and time again. You're missing the opportunity to proclaim Christ's birth. uh, Excuse me, death. You're missing the opportunity to to do everything that, that God intended the table to do. Listen, don't withhold obedience from Him any longer. Get your heart right. Get your life right. Align it with Him. And find the blessings of walking with the Lord. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning again. For reminders of truths that are so fundamental. And yet we confess. How flippantly and how easily we forget them. Remembrance is the key thing that you directed us to do. Walk in obedience to you, Lord. We want to be obedient. Help us to do all that you've commanded us. Help us to rejoice forever in your good sacrifice and your new covenant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.